Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Today on Truth and Movies, Moonlight director Barry Jenkins returns with the James Baldwin adaptation If Beale Street Could Talk. Don't you go thinking I think you some bad girl or any other foolishness like that. Lucas Hedges, Nicole Kidman and Russell Crowe star in the gay conversion therapy drama Boy Erased. Play the part, man. And then once you're home, you gotta figure out what to do next. After Film Club, we're off to 1950s Brazil for Marcel Camus' unique twist on Greek tragedy, Black Orpheus. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So this week we have something quite rare. David Jenkins, editor of Little White Lies, guesting two weeks running. Welcome back, David. Hey. And joining us, Kelly Weston. Welcome back, Kelly. Hi, thank you. Always a pleasure. Now, Kelly, have you seen Burning? Uh, I have seen a bit of Burning. I have a screener link for Burning, mm-hmm. but I have not finished it yet. Well, David, we had some a response after our chat last week about this mysterious cat that you said you could see if you freeze frame and zoom in Burning. We have Ross Logan on Twitter here saying, in response to the Burning chat, if the cat were imaginary, who was pooing in the box below the bed? David Jenkins. But that's that's another question that you need to ask. If you can't see the cat, then who, it's it's the Schrodinger's... Is it Schrodinger's cat? <laughs> Schrodinger's litter tray. If, if you can't see who's doing the poos, <laughs> is it dead or alive? Oh my gosh. And also, David, we have an email here from uh, Steve Burkery about last week's chat, specifically about Jason Reitman. This was a sort of wild whim, I would say. Like, I mean, I, I think I was maybe a little bit ill. I had some cold and flu tablets still sort of washing around my system, so maybe that was where this, this sort of Jeremy had came from. But. Let's see what Steve says here. I was amused that David, having confessed to basing his original review of the Ghostbusters reboot on reasons other than the merits or otherwise of the film, immediately proceeded to launch into a fatwa mm. against the films of Jason Reitman. I'd expect a reaction that visceral towards a Von Trier or a Greenaway film. But Jason Reitman? Really? Is he the guy <laughs> you're most offended by, David? I think it's more that he is a kind of... He has been somehow positioned as the acceptable face of indie cinema. He's kind of bringing a sort of slightly indie flavour to very kind of mainstream projects. And I don't know what it is. It's just something about his films that I always find either egregious or offensive. I think he's desperately trying to give this very enlightened liberal viewpoint of things and just fails every time. I can't think of a film of his I've seen that I haven't thought... Yeah, that's kind of offensive. I feel offended by that. So okay. that's that's the reason for... I mean, I think Von Trier Greenaway, 
there is an element of self-consciousness there. They're, they're mm-hmm. actually like, they are kind of teasing and, and jabbing at you. But I just watch Reitman's films and get the sense that he doesn't really know what film he's making. I mean, that's, that's maybe even more brutal an assessment than I delivered last week, but uh-huh. I stand by it. Firm. Well, Steve does conclude here that his level of anticipation for a new Reitman Ghostbusters is neither joy nor dread. And I agree, really, mm. even though it seemed that we were coming to blows at the end of this episode. But the, you know, this is his first big kind of studio blockbuster, mm-hmm. you know, seeing what Jason Reitman makes of, like, CG effects. You know, let's let's see. <laughs> yeah, but, where, uh, where do you land on all this, Kelly? Are you a Wright fan? I am not a Wright fan. <laughs> um, I think he is the wrong man for <laughs> most jobs. Um I agree with David that I, I he's been positioned as this like sort of indie god and I do think it's interesting that or maybe not maybe it's just my own little bubble but I think people don't give nepotism enough <laughs> credit for his success mm-hmm. but I don't find him offensive I just find it annoying that I am expected to like his films and yeah I I can just ignore him most times and it's been easier I think this year than others um, due to some flops of his but uh, yeah I, I'm not particularly like passionate about him in one way or the other I just mm-hmm. like would rather not think about him <laughs> I, I, I actually way back in the day I think it was like 2007 2008 I was basically anti-Juno and this is when you know this oh, is this is when he was like super well liked. Two thousand and seven, Oscar nominated, Oscar winning Juno. You so, know, I love Juno. Actually, I take that back. Like Beth said last week, a twelve year old, however old I was when that came out, mm-hmm. I loved Juno, but I've not watched it since I saw it in cinemas <laughs> as a kid. I remember just having lots of long discussions with people telling me how wrong I was and, you know... I um, thought you'd, you'd strike me as a Mouldy Peaches fan. I thought you'd be there strumming along, singing along. I, I didn't mind the Mouldy Peaches way back when. <laughs> time and a place. Yes. Well, there's definitely time and a place for discussing Jason Reitman. I think that time and place has gone past now. Thank you very much, Steve. And thank you, Ross, as well, for the correspondence. If you'd like to let us know anything that you think about the films we discuss or the discussions in general, let us know at the usual channels at Truth and Movies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email or at the lwlives.com slash podcast comments section. So let's crack on with this week's new releases. We're going to go where the street has no noms. That's quite a tortured pun, really, because Beale Street has two Oscar nominations. I just wanted to try and do a, a U2 pun. No, that's fine. That's good. Keep all that in. <laughs> Keep the explanation of the unworkable pun in. I always like to try. Try too hard, maybe. But let's talk about the new Barry Jenkins movie, If Beale Street Could Talk. So Barry Jenkins, director of Moonlight, here adapts a novel by James Baldwin. It's the story of Tish and Fonny, a couple in 1970s Harlem separated by a wrongful conviction. And to make matters worse, Tish discovers she's pregnant. Here's a clip from early in the film when she tells her family the big news. Tish. You sure you want this baby? Yes. And Fonny wants it too. It's our baby and... And, and it's not his fault that he's in jail. It's not like he ran away. And we've always been best friends ever since we were little. Daddy, you know that. And we'd be married now if it wasn't for that lady lying. He knows it. He knows it. Your daddy knows it. He's just, he's just worried about you, that's all. The clip from If Beale Street could talk there. So, Kelly, listeners may know James Baldwin. There was that documentary a couple of years ago, I'm Not Your Negro. Could you let us know about him, this novel, and is this a good fit for, for Barry Jenkins after Moonlight? 
Yeah, so um, James Baldwin is having actually a, a bit of resurgence. He was uh, an extremely popular and well-known writer in the, I want to say, from late 1940s mm-hmm. onward. Um, and this book is like one of his later works. But he was a phenomenal essayist. Tanahasi Coates has, you know, quoted him and credited his, you know, entire career to James Baldwin. He's very, very well well loved among black creatives and intellectuals for good reason. I do think he is most famous for Giovanni's Room, right. um, but a lot of people also cite The Fire Next Time, which is a book of essays that's sort of like written to his uh, 15-year-old nephew at the time. And he was writing in, in the heat of the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. admittedly from abroad, uh, from Paris, and uh, he was so incisive about the sort of emotional decay that racism wrought on America mm-hmm. um, and Americans. And when I heard it was, you know, announced that Mary Jinx was doing this book, I want to say it was like right on the precipice of Me Too. And I just thought like, this is not a story that I want to hear right now because, you know, the synopsis is it's about a woman trying to prove the innocence of her boyfriend who may have uh, raped this woman. And I was actually having a conversation with some friends, among them, uh, Taylor Montague, who Uh wrote the piece for Little White Lies. And we mentioned that we liked that it was actually like quite... This is not a spoiler. Like, it's very clear in the film that he has not raped this woman, but this woman has been raped. Mm -hmm. And I do think one of the really commendable things about this film is that it is so generous with its compassion and how gracious it is to, like, all of its characters, even those characters that are not immediately lovable or Mm -hmm. endearing. And I think Barry Jenkins is actually, you know... He's such a great fit for this because I think he's somebody who's like a a truly um, compassionate director without sort of veering over into sentimentality, which is, Mm -hmm. I think, quite easy to do with a film like this. Yeah. David, were you a confirmed fan after Moonlight? Does this continue what we may expect from that film? If I'm being truthful, I really liked Moonlight without loving it. I had a few kind of structural problems and... For people who haven't seen it, it's this kind of triptych film mm-hmm. that follows this character through three periods in his life. And there was, I loved the first section, I loved the third section, but there was this middle high school section which just, it kind of spoiled the film for me a bit. Really? Mm. Um, and I rewatched it again prior to actually interviewing Barry, mm. and um, it still kind of stuck in my craw a little. And I do find that this film. I mean, I just loved this film. I mean, it was. It, it, I'd read the book, and then when I'd found out that he was doing the film, I'd I sort of got it out again and, and read it again. And you, it's a very cinematic book. It's a very easy book to read and actually visualize real people saying these lines and making these decisions. And you, it's, it doesn't take a great leap of faith to imagine how this would look on a screen. Mm. And I think that what Barry Jenkins has done is made something which feels so close to the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I mean, it's it's not exactly page for page. He's just made something that feels so honest and truthful. And, you know, you can almost like, he's almost creating memories of what it was like to read the book in the first time. In particular, I remember being very, very moved by the character of the mother, mm-hmm. who, who in, in the film is played by Regina King. And I think it was just so supremely satisfying to see that, transpose it to the film to make it over to the film for that character to be so rich and like this you know this powerful matriarch who is kind of going all out to essentially save her son save her grandchild save her daughter-in-law i want to just like take a moment to really stone for this film because it has gotten lost i think in 
the discourse and maybe, you know, necessarily because I think the films that have risen to the top, however you feel about them, you know, Green Book, Bow Rap, and uh, to a lesser extent, Vice, you know, hopefully that conversation is productive and, and we'll see how that turns out. But I would argue, just like objectively speaking, however you feel about this film, and, I, and like you, David, I really, really love this film. I've seen it twice, and the first time I was, I, I walked out of the screening crying, <laughs> and the second time was also, it just like really cemented my love for it. But one thing I think that is just like unquestionable is that this is such a technically well-made film like it is flawless everything from the editing to the pacing the cinematography I think you're right like this book is really cinematic it sort of lends itself to the screen arguably I think more than and than any of his other books but it's so I think easy given the structure of it because it is a film that's like told through flashbacks and there's so many tension-filled themes that it's very easy to fumble this and there's such like craft that like has gone into this obviously like it's so meticulously well made and the score is perfect I remember just like walking out of the screening thinking this is like and I didn't even know it, but like this is the, this is exactly the way that I would want a James Baldwin mm. adaptation to sound. Could we be specific here? Because this isn't a plot-heavy film. We we talk yeah. about the setup. The book is in the editions I picked up in the bookshop the other day is 170 pages. It's mm. not an epic. Yeah. It's a very specific story. And you talk about this technical craft. What is he doing here? And what is the effect that it's creating? I'll just take a brief minute to also plug. I spoke to Barry Jenkins uh, for Sight and Sound, mm-hmm. and and one of the things that he mentioned was that the scenes in which you go back in time and you see Tish and Fani's love, their relationship, is just sort of like they are floating, everything. The the entire film is like really vibrant Mm -hmm. and just sort of just like just brilliantly shot. Barry Jenkins uh, has now sort of become known for this thing that he does where he has his actors looking at the screen and there's this kind of like sustained looking. Mm. But he mentioned that all of this, that we're experiencing this film entirely through Tish's eyes, even though, you know, there's certain scenes where she's like not aware of what's happening. And the scene that's popping into my head is a scene where Regina King's character lands in Puerto Rico, which is an incredible, breathtaking shot of her just like coming off the plane. Mm -hmm. But because we're like looking at her memories, it's all sort of like glossy and they like, the very first scene is them sort of like floating down the stairs and it is like, you know, imbued with this real like, you know, romance. It's It does feel epic. Like, I read the book after I seen the film, but it does sort of make their romance this like really like huge, grandiose thing. And I think that's sort of accomplished through James Laxton, the the cinematographer that Mm -hmm. James has worked with throughout for all of his films and how much more vibrant the colors look. And then in the present day, you see Tish sort of like having a difficult time she's pregnant the quick editing and it's really like this push and pull like just watching it is like you're so immersed in like what she's going through and I think Mm -hmm. it's incredible so is, is that the quality you talk about, David, when you say you immediately love this film? What were you going through watching a movie like this? Just slightly awestruck, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds so kind of cheap and, and obvious to sort of cite the Oscars and mm-hmm. the, the, the film's kind of... And, and it is up for two nominations. It's Regina yeah. King, but also uh, Nicholas Brattel for, yes. for original score, who, who did the music and, for and, Moonlight as well. And Barry himself for screenplay. Oh, is it adapted yeah. screenplay? Yeah. screenplay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I miscounted, sorry. So... I just find that weird that this film for me is the very definition of like 
the whole package. I mean, yeah. every kind of formal element, every kind of creative aspect, the performances, the writing, the way it's shot, the sort of mood, the score. I mean, it's a film that like is a kind of masterful example of bringing disparate components and making them work as a, a new, unique thing. And I can't understand why it would not get a Best Picture nomination mm-hmm. because, yeah. I mean, you know, I don't want to talk ill of other films, but like, <laughs> there are certain films up for Best Picture which I think the only thing going for them is a kind of big lead performance. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of generally agreed that every other element is refuse <laughs> or worse. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know. It's very odd. It's it's, it's, it's really it, unusual because there's so many like of the you know nominations it has gotten, and I agree. Like we probably shouldn't we shouldn't dwell on this because just because it hasn't got Oscars doesn't mean anything, no. and we don't want to like give you know undue credit to awards. But there are so many like easily awardable maybe that's not a word but things to this film like the cinematography Mm -hmm. like the editing and the performances are are really understated I mean Regina King is great and she deserves everything like she deserves all the glory she's been great for a really really long time but I think Coleman Domingo is also really great in this film Kiki Lane is I want to say this is her debut this is her first big acting job yeah And she's great in it. And Stefan James, who plays Fani, also gives, like, a really incredible—it's not even just, like, you know, a performance that's sort of, like, designed to make us feel sympathy for him because, you know, we're spending so much time with Tish that we don't get to see him, but— that transformation, his transformation feels really seamless. Like, there are things that happen to him in jail that we don't know about that you can see on his face every time we see him. It's great. And I, and I mean, like, again, Brian Tyree Henry, I say again, but really, I've just been talking about him a lot in my personal life. But I, he, he is, he, yeah, he has one scene. And it is one of the most powerfully acted scenes that I have seen in years. Like, and it, he does so much with like, I want to say, ten minutes of screen time. Mm-hmm. He tells a story. What happened to him is is so much more explicit in the novel. But Barry Jenkins, like, sort of, I think, really wisely, entirely relies on his performance and doesn't like, you know, have him say like all of the things that like went on while he was in prison. But it's just like, if I'm. Extremely baffled <laughs> at the at the way this film, the many ways this film has been overlooked. Well, phrase it another way. If you're sick of the Oscar conversation, yeah. go and see this movie. It sounds very strongly recommended here. So much to recommend it for. But any final comments, David? I think one of the things I, I loved about it and that I feel is quite unique is it has this kind of ethereal quality to it. It's very delicate film. From films that you maybe associate that take a place in Harlem in New York. There is this kind of bustle and and they're big and loud and brash and it's a very unique like look at the city as well, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of brown and pastely and it feels like you're in the time as well. Like it feel it feels like it's early seventies. With absolute like minimal effort, he has taken you back in time. Let's just create a mood. Mm-hmm. The film is a mood, I think, yeah. you know, to use that old thing. But I can't wait to see it again. I think that whatever misgivings I had about Moonlight, I mean, I think Barry is, is a master and uh, the way he's kind of constructed this film, the camera movements, the way he kind of moves the camera in this expressive way. I mean, he often talks about how he's a big fan of, of the, the Hong Kong director, Wong Kar Wai. Mm-hmm. And 
I think you can absolutely see it in this film. I mean, yeah. this this feels like his kind of in the mood for love. Yeah. It's got that kind of tender yearning. We're just going to sort of like drown out the the din and focus on these two souls and let everyone else just do their thing. And we're just going to just have a look at these two people. And mm. it's yeah, it's it's amazing. And if I could just piggyback off of that really quickly and just very concisely say, because <laughs> I know I've been going on about this, I do think that there is something really special about the fact that this is a film about black people and I think it's it's a very familiar sort of story. We've definitely seen stories about young black men who have been imprisoned unjustly. And I think it would be very easy to to make this film like really gritty and really depressing. And it is sometimes, like, really difficult to get this from James Baldwin as well, but there's definitely, like, an underlying, like, hope and optimism to his work. And I think that Bear Jenkins managed to, like, translate that to screen because it is a, a really, really sad story. And it's harrowing, but I do think at the end of it, there is something, like, really uplifting about it, ultimately. And it's really special, and I, I really, like, want to give, like, you know, kudos to him for that because I, yeah, this is... a very close to my heart this film. No, no, you're very yes. welcome. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's a whole yeah. issue of Little White Lies about this film, so you can to go deeper into the film. Yes, please do. <laughs> yeah. Yes, pick up our issue that's currently on the shelves where and, we've spoken to Barry and, and, and Coleman Domingo yeah. about James Baldwin and have a, a big thing on James Baldwin and his uh, film criticism. Mm-hmm. So, And specifically, Taylor Montague's review is such an in-depth you know, personal piece yeah, of the yeah. film. It's fantastic. Plenty to read up on there. But let's put scores on this. Kelly, I'll come to you first. This is in anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect. I'm giving it all fives <laughs> across the board. So that's it for me. Well, is going to be anything else? I w- I'd probably say four, five, five. That tiny little kind of twinge of doubt was just because, as I say, I had a few little twinges of doubt about, mm-hmm. about Moonlight. But I was so excited about the book. And um, Barry's doing some TV next yeah. He's, he's doing like a serialized slave narrative, Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. The book prize winning novel, The Underground Railroad. Yeah, sorry, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't want to rock the boat, but, uh, you know, I, I really loved Moonlight, so five anticipation for me. This didn't transport me in the way it clearly has transported <laughs> you to, so probably three enjoyment, but I'm so willing to go back. Um, that craft is really, there's nothing else out there like this. Maybe outside of the Oscar window. Way to poop the party, Michael. <laughs> hey! <laughs> But it's this Oscar season, seeing all of these films week on week. This is not failed Oscar pit at all, but some of these are, and maybe we'll be talking about one next. In fact, we are talking about one next. It's Boy Erased. Based on the memoir by Jared Conley, Boy Erased follows Baptist teenager Jared, played by Lucas Hedges, who is sent to a gay conversion therapy camp by his parents, Nicole Kidman and Russell Crowe. There, he's under the supervision of Victor Sykes, played by director Joel Edgerton, who uses harsh methods to cure the kids of their same-sex attraction. Here's a clip of Jared receiving some advice for surviving the programme from a fellow attendee, played by erstwhile synth-pop singer-songwriter Troy Sivan. You okay? I'm fine. Fine. I'm going to give you some advice. Play the part. Show them it's working. You're getting better. Fake it until you make it, right? You don't want to end up in one of those houses for any length of time. 
I've heard the stories and they're not good. And that's where you're likely gonna end up. Sarah's already there. So play the part, man. And then once you're home, you gotta figure out what to do next. This sounds remarkably similar to a film that came out only a few months ago, and in fact it was a Little White Lies co-film, The Miseducation of Cameron Post. Is this sufficiently different for us to care about this one? You've jumped ahead of me there. You've, you, <laughs> <laughs> I was totally going to like bring that up, but you've, uh, you've beat me to it. I mean, obviously people's experiences will vary, but it was very difficult for me to watch this without thinking fondly of Desiree Akavan's The Miseducation of Cameron Post, which I think in pretty much every way is a superior piece of work. Mm-hmm. The stories are like virtually identical mm-hmm. I mean mm-hmm. I mean the key differences are Cameron Post is about female and the tone of Cameron Post is just it feels so more affecting for just being a little bit less kind of hyperbolic and it has this kind of whimsical comic edge to it and there's this kind of deep sense of exasperation and melancholy whereas this film is kind of trauma suffering <laughs> bad things hatred self-hatred you know it's mm. kind of big emotions thrown at the screen and uh, I didn't necessarily find it like to be a disaster I I must say it wasn't a film that I was like particularly excited to see but um, yeah it was fine here's an example of a scene in the film which which I think sums it up and uh, these guys are laughing because I think they might know which Uh what scene I'm going to talk about like Lucas Hedges as Jared is in the gay conversion camp he's having a really bad time and he's being forced to kind of admit that his impulses are incorrect and that he is a kind of devil in the eyes of the Lord and what what not. And he's kind of walking down a street at night and uh, on a bus shelter there's a kind of advertisement for some, like a fashion advertisement and it's like a kind of hunky guy who's sort of dripping with sweat or water or something and uh, he sort of stops in his tracks and looks at it and starts like hitting the, <laughs> the advertisement as if the, this hunky guy is the reason why his life is is kind of turning bad. And uh, it's a very, very, I thought, poorly... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, obviously it's based on a a memoir. I don't know if this is actually a thing that really happened, that that the real Jared actually took out his anger on an advertising billboard. But but as a kind of cinematic moment, it rings so untrue and so Mm -hmm. contrived for a kind of, you know, something to put in a a trailer, which is like big emotions that... Mm. I don't want to use melodramatic in a negative way, but this is kind of the bad aspects of melodrama, I guess. I find it really fascinating because I, I really liked Joel Edgerton's first movie, The Gift. It's uh, so good, yeah. Which is a, a Blumhouse sort of thriller which mm. has some pretty schlocky turns as it goes on, but is quite straight-laced yeah. um, and full of tension. And then in this one, it feels like he's been inspired by the film Loving he did a couple of years ago, which was a, a sort of issues-worthy drama that didn't get Oscar nominations that it was clearly going for. And it's, it's strange. You say it's melodramatic but it's also not really it doesn't pop off in the way you expect melodrama to to have that moment where you're sobbing in tears or some sort of rising action it's almost similarly understated and melodramatic and neither satisfying neither impulse because there's no real villain in this i haven't actually seen the gift but reading up on it this feels like a horror you know he's, he's making say, a horror film. yeah one um, of the things that i really find like really interesting about the film i think the miseducation of of cameron Post and this film are both just like good films. I know mm-hmm. a lot of people loved uh, the miseducation of, of Cameron Post, um, but I think that one of the things that makes this film more interesting 
is that it frames those scenes in the gay conversion camp as horror scenes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's good. It's like, I would argue that one of my problems with miseducation of, of Cameron Post is that it did sort of imbue those scenes with the kind of just like, oh, we're here and it kind of sucks, but it is like, you know, this moment for us to just like bond and like, you know, we find ourselves, like find a, you know, sort of group of, of misfits who like, you know, identify with each other. And ultimately, I think that does work on some level. But I, at the same time, I also think it sort of undercuts how awful these places are. Mm-hmm. I like that Joel Edgerton sort of like drove that point home. The, the opening sequence is like the gift in a sense where it's just like this ominous sense of or foreboding. It's a very pointed scene, that opening scene, where he's basically tricks you into thinking that Lucas Hedges has been sent to prison or something yes. for some, some awful yes. crime. Yeah. And that awful crime is being gay. Yes. And, I mean, without giving no spoilers or anything, but actually the other thing that I think is, is quite interesting about this film, and I'm still sort of grappling with how well it does this, is that Lucas Hedges is gay, but he's also sort of experienced a trauma before mm. he goes to this camp. And it's interesting how that trauma then frames his experience of the gay conversion therapy and how different that is than the other thing is like we don't really like get to know any of these other characters they're just sort of like shadows around him basically but it becomes this thing that really like separates him from the group and really like isolates him and I and I think that was something that really like I found like quite engaging and also quite authentic and like honest so much of like what's happening there is these children are like being traumatized basically and there are certain things that I think that he's able to recognize just because he already is sort of like opting out because all of these things sort of just like make it impossible for him to immerse himself, I guess, in the belief that he's wrong. He's been raised as a Christian, but also there's something that he he knows like fundamentally that what's happened to him is wrong. Um, so I don't know that I've put that in, mm. in a very like articulate terms, but I guess I do think how that is depicted as quite interesting. I think there are some very interesting complexities to this story that aren't in Cameron Post. So as you say, this mixture of how trying to figure out your identity sexually can be affected by trauma and they can be linked but not necessarily linked and then they can be bundled together by outside forces. Likewise, in the latter half of the film, it becomes just as much a parental drama as a gay conversion therapy drama where Nicole Kidman's character comes in. It's more the relationship between Lucas Hedges and his character and his uh, Baptist minister slash used car dealership father played by Russell Crowe with a tremendous gut (laughs) and that's probably where it becomes less sensationalist and more about the nitty gritty of relationships and coming to terms with things between the generations. It's kind of bringing together the paradoxes I think Mm -hmm. you know it's like drilling down into that idea of like how can you believe in the word of the bible and still you know love your son whose lifestyle doesn't abide by those strictures Mm -hmm. um One of the things that I found quite interesting, it was a sort of section in the middle of the film which involves Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers. (laughs) In his best performance, does this top his Back to the Future performance as Needles? Maybe, maybe. He's playing this kind of aide to Joel Edgerton's character and he's he's teaching these people the idea of what it is to be like a man's man. Mm. And the sort of chant that people are sort of saying to each other is like, fake it till you make it which is essentially just pretend that you're converted and there's no way they'll ever know. That idea in itself is kind of fascinating, the idea of of like, well, this whole enterprise is is based on a kind of, on a nothing 
you, you, you can't tell a person's gay by looking at them, I guess. Or, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. or maybe people might dispute, <laughs> dispute that. But like, you know, is there a way of actually like pretending that you're you're fine? And, you know, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but it doesn't really go too deeply into that. No, or go in any direction, either sensationalist or deepened searching. Because it's, it's, it's quite a nice idea about like, you know, the idea of acting as well. Like, is it just a, a concept of like changing yourself and making other people believe mm-hmm. something? Mm-hmm. I suppose to, to finish with... Lucas Hedges, how does he fare? Of course, Manchester by the Sea, incredible mm. performance there. And it feels like this is the year where those beautiful boys of the last couple of years, <laughs> both Lucas Hedges and Timothy Chalamet, have just almost disappointed with their difficult follow-up films. Kelly, how does Lucas fare for you? Uh, I think I'm just like, just right out of the generation of Chalamayers or whatever they may call themselves. Mm-hmm. But I think that they're both like really interesting performers and Lucas Hedges is great in this. Like he's the, the saving grace of this. In my rant before about like him sort of experiencing this trauma and how it like sort of wrecks him, all of that is made real to us through his performance. I don't necessarily think it's in the script. I think it's just like his you know, sort of tornness that really, you know, sort of made me buy this character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that he is great. I mean, it's interesting that this is the film that a lot of people have sort of like, and I think it's just because of the boy in it, but this is the film that people like sent, tend to like juxtapose beautiful boy with, even though the Lucas Hedges films that, that would be like more comparable is Ben is back, which I, I haven't seen, but have heard that he's good in that as mm-hmm. well. But I think that they, he's really interesting. I, I would argue that... You see the new Matt Damon. Um, what do you mean by that? Yeah. They, 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 they look a bit similar. Do you think so? Is Lucas Hedges going to buff up and start doing... I wouldn't be surprised. Like karate movies. chops yeah. and Elysium type sci-fi movies. Yeah. I'm Why excited not? for what he could do because I do think that he's like really engaging. I think there's something like really like quite interesting about him and the choices he makes. Are they both Lucas Hedges and Timothy Chalamet in Little Women, the next Greta film? I think it's just Timothy or uh, Timothy. 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 <laughs> That's one, one for the older. <laughs> <laughs> um, D- David, let's put some scores on Boy Erased. Yeah, I probably would say two, three, two. Ah, um, okay. Even Manchester by the Sea, I wasn't... Lucas Hedges wasn't the thing that I liked about that film, to be honest. And sorry to be like, go all like Jason Reitman on it. I'm not going to go to Jason Reitman, but I've, I, there's, there's something about Lucas Hedges that I feel is, he, he doesn't feel like a film star to me. You know, I mean, seeing him in a movie, it's like, I'm just seeing a, a guy in, in front of a camera. He lacks a certain kind of aura that can translate into a kind of exciting screen presence but so but not character actor you don't think he has a yeah. like character actor potential maybe i will say the jury's out <laughs> i'm not gonna i'm not writing him off now but he's got some work to do you're not me. investing really... in the uh, hedges fund no yeah. <laughs> Honk. Yes. kelly your scores please i would say a two three three like if, if i wouldn't walk away if somebody put this on while we were like hanging out at the house and they said <laughs> i've not seen boy erased i would still stay. I wouldn't just immediately walk up and, and leave. Oh, I don't want to sound condescending because I like Joel Edgerton a lot, actually, but there is effort that has been made here, <laughs> and I appreciate, I'm really grateful for that effort, because as you say, Michael, I do think there are some complexities in this film. It doesn't always like deliver on them, unfortunately, but I want to give a B for effort. Yeah, is what I would I'd, like I'd say threes across the board for me. Yeah. I think this is perfectly fine, if not exceptional. And it's not exceptionally bad either. <laughs> anyway, that's Boy Erased. 
Up next, we have Film Club with Black Orpheus. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A retelling of the Greek myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, Black Orpheus reset the proceedings in Rio de Janeiro at the height of Carnival. It was the only major film from the director, Marcel Camus, but what a hit to have. The film won the Palme d'Or at Cannes in 1959, beating both Francois Truffaut's 400 Blows and Alan René's Hiroshima Mon Amour, and it won the Best Foreign Language Oscar the following year. David, this is one of those films that seems to be in everyone's pile or to watch list. Is this one that should go to the top of that list? Yeah, I mean... I've definitely had it in my to-watch list for a long, long, long time. Maybe the idea of like, oh, it's it's Greek tragedy. Uh, you know, you feel like, oh, it's it's academic, it's work, it can't be fun. And then one of those like horrible moments where you put the film on and within two minutes you're just like, oh, what an idiot I have been for so long. Because <laughs> it kind of isn't that film really. It isn't the stuffy, literary epic that maybe you thought it was. It's set in Rio de Janeiro in a favela, kind of overlooking Sugarloaf Mountain, and uh, it's a happy place. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's maybe you could argue it's too happy for uh, yeah. for, for slum living. But um, the director Marcel Camus went to Brazil and was kind of enraptured by the kind of carnival scene there, and decided he wanted to make a film working all of these elements together. So that you do have kind of there's a lot of sort of documentary footage of of the carnival in the film, pretty much wall-to-wall bossa nova in the background, which is no bad thing in my book. The sort of rough story is kind of in the lead-up to the carnival and people preparing their big song and dance mm-hmm. number that they're going to perform on, on the streets. And uh, you have Orpheus, who is a, a tram driver, and Eurydice, who is the cousin of a friend, and they're sort of star-crossed when she kind of gets onto his tram. And minutes later, he's um, Orpheus is... <laughs> weirdly decided to go and 
get married to his other girlfriend. And it's yeah, I mean he he's definitely a player, but like maybe one of the strangest elements of the film is how quickly he from agreeing to get married to the point where he's basically head over heels in love with Eurydice is like two minutes or something <laughs> in in real time. So like you kind of feel bad for uh his other girlfriend. Yeah, on 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 his other girlfriend. He does not seem at all like into marrying her from the beginning. And I think he also briefly forgets her name. (laughs) (laughs) But 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 I mean the fact that he has agreed to, you kind of think that there is some history there. And you Mm. you know, she's she's where Eurydice is this very kind of mysterious Mm. type. She's certainly more demure than Yeah, she's more demure and thoughtful (laughs) and and his other girlfriend is like wild and crazy and dancing and And she has to buy her own engagement ring. So can you stump me the cash for the engagement (laughs) ring I'll pay you back later while I go and buy my guitar back from the pawn shop now I've been paid. (laughs) (laughs) You call him a bit of a player. Uh, Brennan Mello literally a football player. Mm. Um, Oh right. Before he was street cast in this film. He he has such a good energy in this film. He's great energy. Bouncing around without a top a lovely body in this <laughs> film as well. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting that you like mentioned all those like dancing scenes because one of the things that really like worked for me in the film is these extended sequences of like certain ceremonies and like religious traditions, and that is just I think crafted so beautifully because I think there's a way it, that has traditionally been done when you're like sort of gazing upon people of color that quite others them, and I think. This is just, like, so vivid, it's so human, it just sort of, like, sits the camera there and you're just, like, allowed to, like, watch them and almost, like, participate in this moment. And it's just really, really beautiful filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And there is a scene which comes, like... Um, when I say maybe the well no it's not the climactic scene but it's it's a scene where they're like at carnival and and they're all dancing and there are these different things that have happened (laughs) or like different strands that have been set up and so you know that it's not going to end well basically and the way that the camera like goes back and forth between several different characters and just like really builds up that action and also suspense, I think, is just, like, so great. Um, Mm. I love this. I think one of the interesting things about it as well is that although you have these kind of almost social realist documentary elements of, Mm. like, capturing the reality of Carnival and this maelstrom of colours and sounds and and whatnot, the film is really heavily stylized as well, Mm. but in really interesting ways. I mean, like, there's almost kind of, like, Derek Jarman levels. Like, for instance... I really love the way he uses red lights on like black mm. skin to almost kind of produce this kind of glowing shadow. There are often moments where like the characters will kind of walk into a light or they'll walk from one white light into a red light and yeah. it's so beautifully choreographed in that way and set up and these kind of scenes which maybe happen between the big crowd scenes are just amazingly realized and like th- thought through with like this immaculate precision and they just look beautiful too I mean the red light in this film is just top notch red lights and the way (laughs) the way it incorporates elements of the myth is really low key and interesting as well the figure who is pursuing Eurydice who is dressed up head to toe in a sort of skeleton outfit because it's carnival is death Mm. you're not sure whether he's actually a real figure or not whether he's a supernatural figure also my favourite scenes of the film are all all around Orpheus and his guitar playing which he kind of brags when I play this song at a certain time of day always the sun will rise Mm. and that just takes on this poetic air as the film goes on I prefer him playing
playing guitar solo than the bossa nova but that might be my my sort of musical ignorance because it just sounds like the demo track on a casio keyboard (laughs) either of you aware of barack obama's writing on this film yes because i think this really fascinating barack obama in one of his memoirs talked about this being his mother's favorite film and he she she took him to see it as as a young age and he was bored by it and has had negative opinions since i'll read a quote i suddenly realized that the depiction of the childlike blacks i was now seeing on the screen the reverse image of Conrad's dark savages was what my mother had carried with her to Hawaii all those years before, a reflection of the simple fantasies that had been forbidden to a white middle-class girl from Kansas, the promise of another life, warm, sensual, exotic, different. And it's so fascinating. This film was internationally a, a huge art house hit. You know, mm. it's all these festivals at the Oscars, the BAFTAs and so on. But it is a very exoticized view from a French filmmaker going and appropriating these stories. What do we think about mm. that? Can we excuse it? Is it part of the power of the film? I think you you always kind of enter into that mindset of whose view is this mm-hmm. you know what who whose eyes are we seeing these stories through and it is kind of strange that a French director would make this film if I hadn't known I maybe wouldn't have predicted it because it does certainly feel there's a kind of organic element to it I think it's it's strange I mean like at the same time it's like I guess the reverse argument is like should we resent this story being told because it is not focusing on poverty and shame and degradation and mm. maybe the the realities that we're not seeing in the film. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't really have a definitive answer on that. I, don't, I wonder if anyone does. Kelly, would you be recommending this? I would recommend it. I mean, I, like David said, like this has definitely been on my to-watch list for mm-hmm. some time, and I was I was pleasantly surprised because I didn't know who directed it, and I just had a feeling that... You know, I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't be on board. So I think I actually started out feeling like, oh, I'm quite uncomfortable with this because historically how black communities, poor communities have been portrayed in mm. cinema does not always give them the humanity or dignity that they deserve. But I've I don't know, I also don't have a definitive answer on this. I just know that I had like it was such a, a sort of immersive experience. I really felt like sort of swept up in it. And I don't think it is all joy. I, I do think so much of their happiness and, and exuberance is a way of sort of hiding from the daily realities of their lives. And I appreciate how they are framed so often. Like they're so like beautifully lit. I never felt like I was uh, watching them be like sort of stifled or or, or made to be yeah mm. exploited in any okay. sort of way. Um, so I would recommend it. I, I think it's like I wouldn't say it's a joyish film. Maybe read up on the myth of Orpheus <laughs> yeah. and Eurydice before you watch this film. But it's so interesting. Yeah. So maybe we don't have a definitive answer to that question, but mm. there, there is, is one a, place. There is a very one. Just to mention it, one element at the end, which is kind of interesting, is like yeah, <laughs> kind of jarring. Is but there's, there's a sort of death scene at the end. Yeah. <laughs> which is quite silly. Well, well, that's, <laughs> well, that's why it's called a yeah a tragedy yeah. <laughs> for Orpheus and Eurydice. But yeah, just saying, there's one place where you can find definitive answers, and that's on social media. So if <laughs> listeners, if you go and watch this film and uh, you want to solve this question for us, you can let us know at Truth and Movies on Twitter, at Truth and Movies at tcolin.com via email, or at the comments section at slash podcast Kelly, David, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank Uh, you. Next week, we'll be talking about The Kid Who Would Be King, the fantasy adventure directed by Joe Cornish. We'll be talking about A Private War, starring Rosamund Pike. And for Film Club, it's going to be 1941 comedy, Preston Sergis' The Lady Eve, starring Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda. 
let us know what you think of that funny, film. Funny film. That. A, funny a film. Great absolute film. classic, right? Can't it's wait so to talk good. about that. It's getting a re-release. That's why we're talking about it. Until then, I have been Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.